Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone out there in radio podcast land. This is Kirk Hammett from Metallica, and you're listening to Gilbert Godfrey's amazing, colossal podcast. Run for your lives! Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a writer, producer, occasional actor, and one of the most successful, prolific, and admired TV and film directors of his generation. His television credits are many, including iconic shows such as Route 66, The Fugitive, The Man from Uncle, Get Smart, Gilligan's Island, The Wild Wild West, Ironside, Tales from the Crypt, and The Twilight Zone. In fact, he's directed what is arguably the most beloved episode in that series, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. As a producer, he's helped bring to the screen a wide variety of projects such as The Lost Boys, Bordello of Blood, Any Given Sunday, The Free Willy series, X-Men and X-Men Originals Wolverine. Or Origins. Origins. (laughs) (laughs) But... It's optional. It's optional. (laughs) But it's his work as a feature director that's had the greatest impact on audiences all over the world with memorable films such as The Omen, The Goonies, Maverick, Scrooge, Radio Flyer, Ladyhawk, Inside Move, 16 Blocks, Lethal Weapon, 1, 2, and 3. And 4. And 4. <laughs> and 5 and, coming up. Oh, great. 
and of course the granddaddy of the modern superhero film, the Christopher Reeve starra Superman. In a career spanning an impressive six decades, he's directed some of Hollywood's most prominent stars, including Gene Hackman, Steve McQueen, Gregory Peck, Julia Roberts, Jodie Foster, Bill Murray, James Garner, Robert Mitchum, Richard Pryor, and of course, Marlon Brando. Hell, he's even worked with Don Rickles, Buddy Hackett, and yes, John MacGyver. (laughs) We're thrilled to welcome to the show one of our favorite filmmakers and a man who keeps a bust of Abraham Lincoln in his office just to remind himself that he was shot by an actor, the great Richard Donner. Well, that's something else. It sounds like my mother wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now let's, let's get the most uncomfortable thing out of the way first. I auditioned for Scrooged. Say what? I auditioned for Scrooge. He heard you. Say what? I'm sorry, I'm not hearing you. What? I didn't see your check go on the table. Yeah. Now, I also have to bring up. Wait a minute, tell them about Scrooge. Okay, Which yeah. part you are? I auditioned for the part of the cab driver. Oh, well, David Johansson. Oh, yeah. you would have had it. Yes. You would have had but David was going with my sister at the time, and uh, he needed the work. And no, Look, he doesn't have a podcast. Look how it all turns out. Oh, yes. Well put. Now, here's something else I want to bring up, and I know you didn't write this script, and Rod Serling's dead, so I have to blame you. There was that episode of Twilight Zone oh, yeah. starring John MacGyver, and I think he had, like, a boat company or something. And and he kept everything loud. Yeah, Sounds and Silences, it was called. And, oh, my God. Yeah. And he's hey. punished at the end with one of those Twilight Zone punishments where he goes totally deaf. And, and there's a point in the show where he says, Oh, when I was a child, uh, my mother wouldn't allow us to have cookies. We could only eat fudge. She said that cookies were too loud and made a loud <laughs> crunching sound. And when I heard that, I thought, he's a sympathetic character. His mother gave <laughs> him an unhappy childhood. Why is he being punished? It's Rod Serling. Yeah, I it's know. Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's Twilight Zone. It's fairy tales that, you know, demented children love. Yes. Written by demented children. Did you ever hear anybody do a John MacGyver impression before? No, it's John. John did a couple of <laughs> <Yeah. times. laughs> 
<laughs> what was it like directing John MacGyver? Do you remember? You, you know, you're really taking me back. But yes. the only thing I do remember, he was a terrific guy. He he um, he he was kind of at a, a good point of his career. He was a delight to work with. It's hard to. That's a long time ago. Oh yeah, been, yeah, and. Uh, and my wife Lauren Schuler Donner, great producer. Mm-hmm. It's um, she writes my here it is. Your address is fourteen forty four. So I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, it's, well, what about Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet? You're asked about that with one, William Shatner. You're asked about that one often. Yeah, yeah. That was um, another one written. I Richard came Matheson. At me, um, I read it. I loved it. I, we had <clears throat> three days to shoot it. And um, the end of the second day, the producer came in and said, the studio wants the set back. We have to finish now. So we shot until the sun came up the next morning. And, uh, you know, you don't know what you have. I knew that I hated the costume. We were fought about that. And um, you finish it, you cut it, you put it together. And all of a sudden, um, it became a... uh, a classic. Did it? Uh, did I know it? Did I expect it? Anything but. Yeah. Anything but. A classic, even that got remade. That's right. Yeah, by George Miller. That's with right. John, with Lithgow in the in the in the John Lithgow in the Shatner uh, role. I oh, like that, I like that, yours better, Richard. You got good taste. <laughs> <laughs> now you you started as an actor who couldn't take direction. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why, who told you that? Martin Ritten. Yeah. The great Martin Ritt. And he told you that you couldn't take direction, so you should become a director. He said, you you can't take direction, you ought to be a director. And I said, you know, easier said than done. I had been hounding him throughout the entire rehearsal. Not hounding him, but in his shadow. And he just turned and said... Um, your uh, your opportunity is now in a strange way because you want to be my assistant on the next show, and which I was, and I uh, ended up being uh, becoming an assistant. In those days, I was a floor manager and working with some great directors. And poor Martin Ritt got reamed. Um, oh yeah, blacklist. Yeah. Blacklisted. Made some wonderful movies, by the way. Oh, he was Mark great Ritt. director. Great yeah. director. Yeah. Did he make HUD? And a beloved I think, one. I think he made HUD. Oh That's right. God, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Murphy's oh, Romance, yeah. I Love, and The Front, about his blacklist experiences. That's right. Yeah. Which he, was his life story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, what was the one with Sally Fields? Oh, uh, well, the, uh, there was Norma Ray. That's it. And and Murphy's Romance with her and Garner, which oh, was great. Oh, that's right. Another great yeah. one. He was great. He was really great. Yeah. You, I've heard you say if it wasn't for him, you might still be an out-of-work actor. Yeah, I. Uh, it's a kind of a misquote because I didn't say out-of-work. You did. Oh. <laughs> I would have been a very popular, well-known, in-demand actor. and uh, Or maybe I would have been out-of-work. I don't know. Did you enjoy acting? Were you, were you kind of looking around for a way out? I know you did You did some things. You did a Lava Soap commercial, among other yeah, things. Do I have that commercials right? Commercials and a lot of uh, little theater and... Uh, um, some TV shows in New York when it was live. W A B D Dumont. 
Oh, the Dumont that's, Network. Wow. That's, that goes way back. Wow. Um, did I like it? Um, no, it was frustrating. And Rit was right. I, I found it very difficult to take direction, to listen to people. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody knew as much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now here's something I had heard about years ago. Because I did two episodes of Superboy and a few voiceovers as Mischief Picklick. So he, he's part of the extended Superman universe, Richard. Ah. So Ilya Sulkin. Uh, at, <laughs> he has. Are you allowed to say that on? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. He the curse has in Polish. a law, a law on the books named after him. That's true. The uh, soul you, kind. Yeah, the soul kind clause, it's called. It's in the, it's SAG, Screen Actors Guild. You have to declare how many pictures you're making when you hire anybody. That, because uh, in their case, <clears throat> they had done the uh, Four Musketeers. Oh, yeah. And, um, and they had so much extra footage when it was done that they decided to put together another picture from it and um, didn't want to pay the actors for the second movie. Uh, uh, that was my dear friend Richard Lester. Oh, yes. Who, who never called me since he took over Superman. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but, the, the, yeah, that was the Salkine Clause. This, and uh, this- a good one it is. The stories, uh, the Superman stories, I mean, in, in the book, on the, the DVD commentary on, on your cut, on the Richard Donner cut, which is, again, I'm going to blow smoke up your tush, but better than the original Superman 2. Thank you. I don't think it's debatable. But those stories, and I was telling Gilbert, I mean, everything, Richard, that whole journey from you getting the phone call while you're sitting on the John, the, 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 the initial phone call from, from Salkind... Right, and you scribble down a million. You still have that card, that that address sure business do. card. Oh, can you tell uh, us that story? <laughs> it's so good. Well, the story was it was Sunday morning. I was <laughs> totally hungover. I had done the omen. I was the fruit of the month, and um, the fruit of the month. And uh, I was hungover, and I uh, was sitting there, kind of hoping everything was going to be all right, and. Um, that phone rang in. It was this Hungarian voice saying, uh, "This is Alexander Solkland. Do you know who I am?" I, I said, "No, I don't know who you are." <laughs> Sunday morning, <laughs> whatever you're selling, I don't need it. <laughs> uh, and it, bef- before I could finish, and I was about to hang up, he said, "I'm I'm a producer. I'm a very well-known producer." And he named the pictures. I said, "Yes, I did know those." He said, "Well, I'm making a movie." I said. Well, what is it you want from me? <laughs> and he said, I'll pay you a million dollars to direct Superman. And then I figured, okay, this is one of my friends. Somebody, <laughs> somebody who was with me last night and knows the shape I'm in this morning. And um, he, he said he had Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, had dates, and he's making two pictures, not one. And um, he offered me a million dollars. That was like somebody saying, all the tea in China. Uh-huh. 
I mean, a million dollars was unheard of. <clears throat> Today, it's pocket change. Not for me, but for what goes on out there. Right. Anyway, um, he said, um, I'll send you the script. And I swear to you, it wasn't more than an hour before there was a knock on my door and uh, a messenger with a box and a script. The script was so big that you almost you got a like a hernia lifting it out of the box. I couldn't believe it. It was two movies, and I read them. And the first thought was, these guys are killing Superman. They're Hungarians from, I forget where, uh, Costa Rica or someplace. They had a, they had a diplomatic passport. Uh huh. And uh, they'd never been there, so something's up. <laughs> and uh, and they, it was just it was a parody on a parody. They were destroying any heritage. And respect that we all as kids had for Superman. Was this the Puzo script, Richard, or had, had had the Newmans and Robert Benton done a pass on it at this point? It was it was Puzo, Benton's, uh, Benton, and Newmans. Right, right. And it, it was ready to go to shoot. They had a director, and I can't think of his name. Very well known. Oh, Guy Hamilton. Well, yes. Yeah. A very well respected uh, director, and yeah, made gold made Goldfinger. Right. Hey, you're good at this. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I, I said, uh, I called my friend Tom Mankiewicz, who uh, was Joseph Mankiewicz's son. Sure. More Academy Award nominations and awards than anybody. And um, Tom was a great writer, and we were great friends for many years. And I, he had done a James Bond, and I figured this is right up his alley. Because what they were doing, they had, uh, I think I said this, but they had things like uh, uh, Lex Superman flying down looking for Lex Luthor in Metropolis. And he was looking for every bald head. And he taps one of them on the shoulder and turned out to be Telly Savalas <laughs> from that series, which oh, I had also. Kojak. Oh, Kojak. Kojak, which I also did. Yeah. And. Um, Telly turns around and says, uh, what do you love, baby? And this was in their movie. And I said, oh, no, this is not Superman. <laughs> Superman. Isn't there a scene, too, where he's looking for a bottle of champagne and he flies around the globe and pulls it out of Queen Elizabeth's hand as she's ready to... You know, it very well could have yeah. been. I mean, that's about as... I don't think I read that far. Yeah. But um, that's what they were doing. And I said, Tom, we got to... I mean, we have to do this. We can make it into something. And I said, but we'll do it with its respect of its own life, a verisimilitude of that period of Metropolis and Smallville. And, and, um, and oh, there's a good point there. In the box beside the scripts was a lot of their preparation. One of the things was a costume that um, <laughs> looked like an old pair of leotards and a red S on it. And uh, Tom was coming over to, oh, no, he said, well, what, what is this? I said, it's Superman. He hung up on me, and I called him back. I said, Tom, <laughs> I'm serious. He said, what are you talking about? I said, they want to do Superman as a film. And it really, he said, I said, I tell you what, come on over and at least talk. So we only lived 15 minutes away. He was coming over. 
I lit up a doobie, <laughs> did about five push-ups, and put on the Superman costume. And uh, got as far back from my driveway as I could. Tom pulled up, got out of his car, was walking towards me, and I came across the lawn um, in the costume running out of me. Turned and ran back for his car. <laughs> and... Uh, I convinced him if he put it on and read the thing, he'd want to do it. And it turned out to be um, just uh, a, a, a wonderful contribution. He is totally responsible for that script and its success. And the Writers Guild, per normal, per usual, wouldn't give him the credit he deserved. Oh, that's a shame. So we, I, I created one called uh, Creative Consultant. And put it on before they could say no. Now it's banned. But um, that was that was the epic—a lifetime, two more years of my life. Okay, just when the show was starting to get good, we're gonna throw a monkey wrench into the works with this commercial word. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little. Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Patton Oswalt, and something's gone horribly wrong because you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast. It's Gilbert and Frank's amazing Colossal Podcast. Now, unfortunately, we return to our show. Yeah, the stories of making that film are, are as fascinating as the as the movie itself. I mean, you going to meet Brando at the compound that he's sharing with Jack Nicholson. I guess you took Mankiewicz with you, right? Oh well, that that it was uh, at that point we um, we had been preparing in England, and almost all of the preparation they had done, I'd say all, none of it worked for me. We had to start from scratch, so we were. Hustling like crazy and a whole different approach to wardrobe. And and uh, I had never met either Brando or Hackman. And um, they were both two incredible experiences in my life because uh, with Brando, we were, we were coming back to show him his costume and what he's going to wear and some of the thoughts on the screenplay and if he had any. And... Um, in preparation, I called, uh, first person I called was a wonderful 
producer, studio executive named Jay Cantor, world known, great guy. He used to be Brando's agent. Was Marlon? It was a, a, a Marilyn Monroe's agent. Great guy. And I said, Jay, I'm going to do this thing with Brando. Is there anything you can tell me? Any hints you can give me? And he said, uh, Yes. He said I spoke to him. I said, oh, gosh, what, what, what? He said he wants to play it like a green suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what I did. I laughed and I said, come on, Jay, tell me. He said, no, I'm serious. He said he hates to work and he loves money. If he can convince you that the people on Krypton look like green suitcases, then you'll photograph a green suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) He'll come in for a day, do the voiceover and walk away with $5 million. So I had that, and that would really uh, set me back a little bit. And then I, so I called um, Stanley Kubrick, and I said, Stanley, I, I spoke to Jay. He told me, he said, what, what can you give me? He said, listen, he's so bright, and he loves to talk. So just listen, and I guarantee you, whatever you want, you'll get, because he'll talk himself out of his own things. So with that, we flew to California, and I went up to approach Brando and explain why the green suitcase wouldn't work. <laughs> and he was, he was totally entertaining. We, uh, we spent um, a quick half hour or an hour just Marlon talking. And what are you going to do? And you just want to sit and listen to him. Of course. Fascinated. So he finally turned. Oh, wait. He was talking about kids in today's world <coughs> in that world and that was 1976 or 7 and uh, he said you know I told my son the story about the wolf that chased the rabbit around a tree and over a wall and the kid said he told me he said no daddy he went over a tree and around a wall he said these kids they know everything Okay, so finally, <laughs> a half hour later, he said, that's not why you're here. Let's discuss why you're here. What do you want to talk about? I said, well, Mr. Brando. He said, Marlon. I said, okay, Marlon. He said, let's talk about your wardrobe. He said, I got a great idea. <laughs> I know what he doesn't know that I know. <laughs> so I said, what's that, Marlon? He said, what if I play like a bagel? Now, I'm used to... <laughs> My preparation is a green suitcase, not a bagel. And I said, I beg your pardon. And he said, well, you know, what if the people in Krypton look like bagels? And I make my son in the image of a earthling because I know where that rocket's going to go. He had read it, obviously. Um, and he said, um, that way uh, you don't have to worry about anything. You just f- photograph a bagel and... So I, I said, you know, that's, that's a great idea. And the producers and Tom are going, yeah, that's a great idea. And I'm going, uh-uh. And um, I finally said, uh, you know, Marlon, you were telling a story about kids. I said, that the, the fox jumps over the wall and around the tree, not over the tree. He said, yes. I said, well, there isn't a kid in the world, practically, that doesn't know what Superman's father looks like. And that's Jarrell. And that's this picture, what you're going to look like. 
And he looked at me and he said, I talk too much, don't I? I said, well, it was fascinating. Wow. He said, you got me, kid, whatever you want. About and that? he was a doll for the rest of the shoot, for the entire thing. How about that? It was and amazing. One time you were having dinner with Marlon Brando at his house and someone almost got stabbed to death. Oh, this was in the restaurant when Salkine's wife was yeah. drunk and she went, at, was it Mankiewicz she went after? Yeah, yeah. She had been writing pages for the script and, and um, I was trying to be nice because Ilya Salkine, the, the son, that's his mom. And um, I know he was caught in a bad place that he had to show the pages and I kind of liked him. He was a pretty good guy. And um, she kept sending these pages and we just kept saying, forget it, forget it. And so they said, would you at least have dinner with her and explain to her why? So uh, when I told Marlon, he said, I want to go to this. So Marlon came, it was Tom Marlon, myself, and Mrs. Salkine. I guess she had a couple of drinks. And um, she got into an argument with Tom about her pages and why he wasn't using them. And I guess Tom had a couple of drinks and stupidly a little argument ensued. We were in a steak restaurant. Next thing is I see this knife coming at Tom. Uh, and um, Brando grabbed her arm and took the, we took the knife out of her hand. And it was... Uh, Quite an experience. I mean, it was just something else. I think she had gotten a little drunk and she was passionate about her writing. And I don't know, yeah. maybe we mishandled it, but it was an experience. It's <laughs> all part of the book. <laughs> so, Go out there and buy that book, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you almost witnessed a murder. Uh, yes. Yes, I did. You guys are quick I, thinking. Um, I must give credit to Brando. Yeah. Now, and when you met Chris Reeve, part of the problem was that he was too skinny for the part. Well, um, yes. When I met him, we were casting on like the 16th floor at the Sherry Netherlands in New York. And I always say, it was a hot summer day, the windows were open, and... In flew this guy through the window. And I knew right away that that good Superman character didn't need the elevator. He flew in. He was, but he was this skinny, tall kid and a kind of honey brown hair, not black or anything. And uh, I, when I cast, I kind of like to find out the personality of the people almost more than what they're their um, defensive uh, um, talents are when they're trying to sell themselves. So I was having a wonderful conversation with him. I really enjoyed him. Extraordinarily bright and um, a terrific kid. And I was really thinking about it. He was skinny, though, and I knew we could take care of the hair. So I said, look, Chris, I um, this is Superman, and, 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 and I'm not going to pad his costume. I need somebody that can look like Superman or at least um, with a couple of months of work pass for the, the, our hero, our world hero. He said, look, before I was an actor, 
in college, I was a jock, and I weighed 40 pounds more. And since I went into acting, I lost this weight because I didn't want to look like a jock. I said, can you put it back? He said, like that. And I, for some crazy reason, I saw him in a play that night down the village. He was wonderful. And I totally believed him that he could do it. And, wow. And uh, I hired him blind. I mean, the whole company would have shut down if it didn't happen. But he worked out 24-7, took all the drinks in the world. The guy who played Darth Vader. Oh, David Prowse. Yeah. Right, is also a body uh, yeah. a weightlifter, a body, yeah. and we hired David to work with Christopher to um, get him going, and and you could actually see the difference in him almost day by day as his body started to build. It also had a lot to do with the personality of the man, Christopher. He was a wonderful actor. He put himself into that character, and um, as the body weight came on, so did the character within. Well, you had the good sense to 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 search for an unknown. I mean, if left to the Salkinds, we would have had James Caan in a Superman suit or Redford. Or well, uh, yeah, they wanted I a mean, star. You know, they were so star struck. Or, they, or well, or it wasn't so much star. What it was with they in those days, I guess it's still the same. If they had Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, and then you name it, uh, it was their finance. It guaranteed their finance. So they were looking for a name. And I was trying to convince them that they had enough of a names with those two greatest American actors and that um, that it would be very difficult to convince an audience that um, Redford and Tice flying with <laughs> Superman. Or oh, Warren Beatty or anybody anybody yeah. else they were pitching. So we wanted an unknown. And, and you wanted to make the action film secondary to the love story. Yes. Yes, yes. One of the things that Tom and I decided was that um, it was a uh, a love story. We called it Jules and Jim because um, here was uh, Christopher, here was Superman, here was Clark Kent, here was Lois Lane, and these two were both in love with her, She's in love with one, um, and it was unrequited love. And it was a, we felt we could make it a complicated little love story, but within the framework, that's where verisimilitude comes in, of Metropolis, that world. And um, that was what, there were two things, that the love story and the ability to put on screen a believable man flying. And that was our mission. And Tom Mankiewicz, too, brought, his approach was to add the, the, the biblical overtones, the Christ overtones. Which oh, gave, yes. Which gave it this extra depth. Which which also had my life threatened <coughs> for daring to portray Brando as, as God and Christopher as his, his only child. So, oops, did I screw it up? Um... And I had many death threats. Really? Wow. Didn't know, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. What were we going to say, and, Gil? And, uh, let's, oh, geez. Now you jumped me, and I was just about to say it. You lost it. Oh, oh good. Well, join the crowd. Yeah. <laughs>
Oh my God, somebody else. I thought that was only me. <laughs> we can ask about Hackman? Uh, no, let's see. Oh, just keep talking. I'll jump in. Well, Hackman right. wouldn't famously wouldn't wear a bald cap. And was it, is it true that he wouldn't shave his mustache? You had to go meet him and talk him into shaving yeah. his mustache? Well, what happened was there's a wonderful publicist named Dick Gutman. Oh, we was, had Dick on this show. Oh, yes. Oh. We know Dick. I He's love him. Terrific. He's the best. He was one of our guests. I love him. He uh, called me one day and he said, have you met Hackman yet? And I said, no. He said, he's going to be in my office in an hour. Why don't you come over? And uh, I had also just come back from England in preparation. And uh, I happened to be growing a mustache. And um, I met him in, in, in Gutman's office. Dick Gutman was one of the great publicists and handled all the many, many great characters, actors, producers, directors. Anyway, um, I I went over and I met Gene and um, we were talking at this big mustache and uh, I said, uh, well, look at, you know, one of the things I want to talk to you about is Lex Luthor, your character and the fact that he is bald, instead of you wearing a bald cap throughout the whole picture, which can be very uncomfortable, um, why don't you shave your head for the movie? And he looked up at me and he said, uh, no, I'm not going to wear a bald cap. And uh, and I don't shave my head. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> Mr. Hackman, I said, yeah. He said, that's your problem. I said, oh. I said, well, I, I see you got a mustache. I just going mine. I said, you, you, at least you'll shave your mustache. And he said, the mustache stays. I said, oh. That was really nice. <laughs> nice meeting really cooperative. you. On, on my way back to London. So when I, I went back and I thought about it. I figured out a way that um, um, we would treat um, Lex Luthor's hair as part of his narcissistic approach to life, his love of his of, of the mirror, and that he would wear his hair different all the time in the movie. And that for he could keep his hair, we would uh, dye it, change it, whip it, curl it. And it was wonderful. And only once at the very end, when he's captured, he has to take his wig off. And Oh, when they take him to cap. jail. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he takes him and Ned Beatty to jail. So um, uh, he, I was in England. I got a call, and they said, Mr. Hackman's in makeup. Um, and I said, does he have his mustache? And by then, I trade mine off. And he said, yes, he has his mustache. So I said to the makeup man, come down here right away. So he came down to my office. I said, put on the best mustache you can possibly put on. And he worked for a little bit, put this mustache on me. I went up to make up with him. Hackman was in the chair. And I said, well, Gene, you know, at least you're happy with the hair. That's all going to work. I understand you're pleased and that you only have to wear the skull cap once. He said, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. I said, but, you know, the mustache, it's got to come off. And he said, no, no, it's not coming off. I said, everybody knows your character. He said, it's not coming off. 
said, all right. I said, I tell you what, I, I was playing with my mustache. I said, you take yours off and I'll take mine off. And he looked at me and he said, all right, okay, sit down. I said, no, while you're there, I'm not going anywhere. You can chase me down. Just, I said to the bank man, take off his mustache. And he looked at me and his hand started to shake with his electric razor. And he went at Hackman and he shaved him clean. And then Gene said, okay. He stood up and he said, you sit down. I said, I don't need to. And I peeled it off. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and he looked at me. Nice work. And his, his neck went from a size 16 and a half to a throbbing 19 <laughs> with veins sticking. I knew he was going to kill me. But it was, again, it was the start of a, a wonderful friendship. That's and nice, a nice outcome. Here's what I was going to ask you. The whole ad campaign for the original Superman was, you will believe a man can fly. And I heard that the... Original special effects were laughable. They were just like horrible when they were they, first. They were really bad. I mean, they were really bad. They were much like, you know, like the TV show, a guy laying on a board and, and um, wind being passed and a background moving behind him. And uh, that, I had a, I had seven units going on that picture all the time. And that particular unit, the flying unit, took us um, well over a year before we sat in a room looking at dailies and said, oh my God, we got it. We got the first flying shot. It took that long and, to get to it. Oh, it was impossible. But we broke every barrier. We, you know, it was before computers. Sure. I mean, there were computers, but there weren't film computers for film. There weren't um, programs that could be done. Everything was still being done in a very old-fashioned uh, style and a, a mechanical way. It worked within its limitations, but you couldn't, you couldn't. It, it, for instance, there's a machine called a front projection machine which is different than a rear projection machine. And, and so that the screen is behind the actor and you project and this machine weighs a ton. Well, a, a, a brilliant man came to us named Zorn Pesic, who had just invented a machine that did exactly what the one-ton unit did, but it weighed like 35 pounds, not a ton. And it had two separate lenses on it that were very special. And we experimented with that and worked on it and developed it until one day this machine made you look up and say, oh, my God, he's flying. Wow. And, uh, so it was it was the whole experience of making this movie. It was painful. It was difficult. Um, I fired my editor at least 10 times, and he quit at least 15. And... Uh, Stuart Baird, he's one of the great film editors. Yeah. And, uh, but it was love-hate. We were all trying to get the same thing done. And we were, when that picture finally opened in a theater, we all sat there. It was, we were very humbled. Gentlemen, this man needs help. 
Well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's still the safest way to travel. friend. I was 17 when I saw it and it was and it was the right age to see that movie and it was it was magical. Oh, to go from, I was only 9. Huh? I'm sorry. To I'm go sorry. from Krypton to Smallville and Glenn Ford, somebody you'd worked with in your past too, to to Metropolis, the way it just took you on this journey through these through these different worlds and brought the old action comics to life for 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 a teenager seeing that movie, uh, you know, and a kid who was a comic book fan, it really was magic. It was movie magic. Well, it uh, it was to us. I mean, it, but it, that's exactly it. That comic book. I mean, my my mother probably threw away the original, which is worth millions. Oh yeah. But, <laughs> but um, it, it 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 was. We had some sort of a moral obligation to that comic book that you read. When you were a kid in the sure. movie that you finally saw when you were 17. Sure, that was the magic of it, to see this yeah. thing come to life that, you, that, yep. you, that you'd had in your, in your mind all these years, that you just, right. you'd been animating it in your head all these years. And the contributions from other people, too, that I don't want to leave out. John Barry and, uh, and John, the great John Williams and Jeffrey Unsworth and all, all of these wonderful, I went out of my way wonderful people that were involved. To find the very, very best in every department. And um, and every night when we were done shooting, I would have uh, drinks in my office and hot doggies that I would <laughs> friends would bring in from the airport from New York from Nathan from um, Nathan's, and um, we'd sit around the office, um, all the different department heads, and talk about the next day's work or the next week's work or two weeks and got everybody involved. I had learned it on, on the Omen. I, I put people together like in, in England, it was very hard because it was all very, very upper and departmentalized. But we, they, we'd get it in and we'd beat the problem by people that were makeup men that were working on coming up with the ideas for the flying units. It was just quite a great experience. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that brings The Omen into the conversation. That's a movie, I it came out shortly after The Exorcist, and I like The Omen a lot more than The Exorcist. So do I. Yeah. Well, and, so do I. 
<laughs> We're unanimous. And how yeah. did how did Gregory Peck come on board with this? Well, um, we we were trying to kind of upgrade a little because it had been sold and pitched for a long time as a uh, horror film, and I felt that by eliminating everything that was obvious in this script, that instead of treating it as a horror film, we could treat it as a mystery suspense thriller. And therefore, you could probably go for a better, higher class actor. Um, at the moment, we were getting down to final decisions on who's going to be what. Um, Marlon, uh, Gregory Peck's agent, I forget his name now, came to us and said, would you consider Gregory Peck? I said, yeah. What I consider, Gregory Pick, are you kidding? I said, I'd do anything to have him. He said, well, look, he's going through a bad time in his life right now. And I want to get him working right away. And if you were really going to make this not a horror film, but a more of a suspense film, he said, I, I'll introduce you and I, I'll push for it. Greg had lost his son um, shortly before. Um, he felt his son was murdered. They thought it was suicide. And it, he was just going through a bad time. And um, uh, we pitched him. We went over and, and had just a delightful couple of hours with him and told him my approach to the film and what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. And I said, uh, he said, well, when are you going to do this? I said, now. He said, what do you mean? I said, I want to go back to England and know that I have you, and then we'll put this into um, play, and you can be working within the end of a month. And he said, oh, my God, that's wonderful. And we got Gregory Peck. Wow. Great cast. And, Great cast. And you only had one argument with Peck. <laughs> Well, you did your research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. That's true. And um, what was it? He wanted to smash furniture and stuff. Well, it, it was a scene where he... God, I got to remember back. It was a scene where he... I think he finds out his wife dies. His, he finds out his wife has yes. died, and he's in... On the continent, she's she was in England, and um, he's in pursuit of some knowledge of of possibly who his son really is, and he gets this message that his wife has died, and um, I had in my mind uh, how I was going to shoot it, and uh, this. Prop man came to me and said, listen, we have a problem. I said, what? He said, Mr. Peck came to me and he said, tomorrow when you do this shoot, he wants everything to be breakaway, meaning he could break furniture or glass or... I said, why? He said, he wants to destroy everything. I said, but that's... I said, okay, let me take care of this. So I I met with him and I 
said, Greg, what's your approach to this scene? He told me that he wanted to hang up the phone and then just destroy everything. I said, I don't, I don't see it that way, Greg. I said, I think um, maybe we come in on you and you've already heard this and you're living with the reality of your wife's death and who you think your child is. And it's a totally different, compassionate moment in your life. And um, I, you just lay there and tell me the story about what happened. And he says, no way. And we get into this argument. And I'm arguing with Gregory Peck. Gregory fucking Peck. <laughs> this is one of the greats of all time. Sure. And um, finally, after this argument, he turns to me and he said, all right, I'll do it your way. You're the director. It's so wrong, I don't believe it. And he left. Because that was the morning shoot. And I, I, I had a way I was going to shoot it. It was all going to be one take, one very slow, long camera movement into his face. And David... David... Uh, oh, so Warner. David Warner. Pardon me? David, David Warner? Warner. Right. From Morgan. Remember the great oh, movie? Oh, sure. Morgan? Suitable oh, case yes. for treatment. Good man. Good movie. <laughs> great movie. So um, I rehearsed them and rehearsed the guys camera and everything and we went home and the next morning Peck comes in <coughs> and I he said alright what do you want me to do and I showed him and I said it's all in this one take and you're, and he looked at me and he said okay let's do it I said uh, you want he said no let's do it I said okay so I laid him down put him in the spot had the guys totally ready and uh, I said I, I'm going to go. go he said go so I gave an action and we ran the scene and we did it really slowly and I'm panicked because if the guy the camera focus puller misses a beat uh, I'm going to have to do it again and again but everybody was so nervous because I was so uptight we hit it perfect on one take and it was over and uh I said, thank you, Craig. It's perfect. He said, well, I can do better. I said, no, you can't. He says, I can do better. I said, no, you can't. I said, you did it once. You did it out of anger at me. And now that frustration was there on the screen. I said, no, that's it. It's over. And he <laughs> was angry at me again and he left. <laughs> and I've got to tell you something, how that movie had an effect on me. Ever since seeing that movie, whenever it's uh, an overcast and very windy day, I always think, oh, this is like that scene in The Omen. <laughs> it's, a great, oh. it's a great scene. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. You know, so, that whole movie was done for, I think, was it a million or two million bucks there? One, one million dollars and an extra $20,000 to get Jerry Goldsmith. And, As the composer. Yeah, and he adds a lot, too. Gregory Peck, I guess, wound up uh, the most successful from that movie, financially. Oh, my God. He got a very good deal on that movie because <laughs> nobody thought it was going to do anything. It was a little film. And um, he was a very humble man, a very good man. He had a... He bought a, a beautiful new home, and um, 
that New Year's, he invited a lot of people to his tennis court. He had a New Year's Eve party and um, to to introduce them to his new home. And while we were there, uh, and he made a little Gregory Peck speech, he said, and I want to thank Dick Donner and Harvey Bernhardt, who was the producer. So, and he got up and he thanked Harvey and myself for buying him this new house, which was really, <laughs> Very nice. again, a wonderful and feeling. And because he had asked for a point in the picture or a few I think points. Whatever it was in those days, it was, it no, it was a lot more than a point. Yeah, I think I think the whole thing was that he got a big hunk, and the the picture did amazing box office. And and I guess they gave it to him thinking that's eh, a dopey low budget horror film. It, exactly, it's not going to make any money. Well, I'll tell you something. Guy that ran that studio at the time was Alan Ladd Jr. Yes, and and Jay Cantor, and um, they believed in that film more than my agent, and I didn't know anything about films. That was really my first big opportunity, and um, but they kept telling me, "Don't take cash, take points." This is the head of the studio telling me. Wow, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they were right, and I was wrong, or my agent at the time. <laughs> So it was like a training program for me. I, I watched it last week, Richard, and it's, you know, I, I guess what they w- used to call B-movie material, but your your direction of it is so classy. It's like a, like a Brian Forbes picture or something. You almost, you remember Seance on a Wet Afternoon? I sure do. It's like you, you have this, this very artistic approach to the material, which I think makes the movie, it's, it's so, be- and it's beautiful to look at. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I am. Uh, it, it 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 was such an important film to me, that, and as they have all been, um, the word style kind of comes out of um, the the first reading of the script because mm-hmm. you see it when you read it, and it never changes. If it changes, it's time to leave the project. Is there proof? bears a birthmark, a sequence of sixes. So says the Bible to all the apostles of Satan. He doesn't have it. He must have it. I've bathed him. I know every inch of him. If it is not visible on the body, it will be beneath the hair. Remove it. You must be devoid of pity. And the woman? She is an apostate of hell. She will die before permitting this. You always see movies in your head, don't you? You always kind of put the movie together in your head before you ever get to the set. Yeah. I read that about yeah. you. Yeah, I do, I do. I, I, um... I'm kind of set in my ways because I've seen it. But at the same time, I'm also open. Um, there are so many people on a movie set, and invariably they, the greater proportion have some sense of visualization or something about the process or the emotions, and you listen to people. And uh guy that makes coffee can make the movie. Best idea wins, right? 
That's, yeah. 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 That cast, Lee Remick. Go ahead. And it always stayed with me also, that scene with the nanny. Oh, yeah. Standing on the ledge of the building. This is all for you, Damien. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. That was um, Jack Palance's daughter. Oh, Molly Palance. Holly Palance, yeah. Holly Palance, a wonderful actress. Yeah. And she happened to be, I had just done a TV pilot with Jack in L.A. Was that Bronk? And I was, yeah, Bronk. Yeah. Oh, God, I remember that one. Yeah, sure. And I was going over and, and Jack said, my daughter's in London, look her up. And I did, and she was a terrific kid, and. I said, this is the perfect little part for her, and she did it, and we've been friends for years. Very chilling scene. Yes. That whole cast, Warner, we love. We'd love to get him on this show, David Warner. Lee Uh, Remick. The great Lee Remick. Leo McKern, who's just so wonderful. Well, we had Leo in um, Lady Hawk. That's right. That's right. Uh, He shows up in Lady Hawk. That's, yeah. And what was Jack Palance like to work with? Another doll. Great guy. Scared the hell out of me. (laughs) You know, when when I went to work with him the first time to meet with him, because he's Jack Palance and he, there are overtones. And uh, <laughs> uh, it turned out to be just a great guy, good sense of humor, uh, and, uh, and, and a pleasure to work with. I mean, here was taking a star of motion pictures and putting him in a TV series, and uh, the time life is a totally different one, and where we would be shooting... 12 pages a day, where in features he would shoot three. He was right on it with us, right up to it. He was a professional, much like Glenn Ford was earlier in Cates County. Oh, Cates County was another show you did. That's yeah. right. I was telling Gilbert out here, I mean, of course, we read the list of all the, yeah. the, the, the screen icons that you directed, but we have a real fondness for character actors on this show, Richard. We had Joey Pants here. <laughs> uh, uh, I love him. Um, uh, Bruce Dern was here. Uh, Jessica Walter and Ron Liebman were here. We love these people. We love we love the character actors. And I was reading to, to Gilbert, Martin Landau, Richard Boone, Glenn Ford, Raymond Burr, Carol O'Connor, George Kennedy, Vincent Gardenia. I mean this this wonderful list: Ned Beatty, Terrence Stamp, E.G. Marshall, who we yeah. love, who we loved, uh, Vic Morrow, of course, your old friend. What what a what a wonderful group of uh, great American character actors. What a great opportunity I've had. Incredible. Incredible. Yes. I, I remember the uh, the Leonard Nimoy. Uh, no, it wasn't the Leonard Nimoy. It was the Martin Landau. Martin Landau, the Twilight Zone. Episode of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, that's Richard. That's right. right. Looking for the bomb. That's Richard's episode. Yes. That's yeah. right. And, and just such another one. When it uh, ends, you go, oh, my God. They, the, the Twilight Zones, when they would send you a script and it would be delivered to your house or something, and for me to squirrel myself away somewhere and turn those pages, it was like reading the first great novel that ever came out because every one of them was always a gem. And that one in particular was a, that was great. Martin Landau, I forget the heavy's name. He was a wonderful actor also. Great. There was a great opportunity, and um, as a, every Rod Serling script, if you, if I were a young director today, or a young producer, I would just go through that list, and read and look at every one of those 
As a matter of fact, I wouldn't. I would read the scripts. Mm-hmm. You can get them because there's a there's a movie in one in every five. I guarantee it. New a new movie idea. A new movie idea about from that? those. How about that? And and so what was it like? You had dealings with Rod Serling then. Yes. What kind of person was he to work with and to deal with? Well, when I worked with him, I was working with um, a couple of producers, and one of them was William Frug, oh, who was sure. a great, great writer, um, producer. And um, you'd you'd meet with Rod and Bill, and um, Rod, if you could see through the smoke, he incessant smoker. Um, um, but if you sat down with them and they started, you, you, it wasn't a case you couldn't get a word in. It was a case you didn't even try. All you wanted to do was have him talk. And invariably, he would start by talking about the project you were about to do, his take on it, his attitude on it. And um, he never asked you, what, what are you going to do with it? But he would tell you what he thought about it and why we were making it or he was making it. And he was, again, you know, I've been so, you name those actors I've worked with. I'm, yeah, what a list. I'm, I'm in awe of it myself. And you talk about the shows I did and the producers and, uh, and people will say to me, uh, I've said this before, they'll say, well, you know, you paid your dues. I don't think I've ever paid dues. It's just been so great. And I'm so fortunate to have done what I've done and to have worked with the people and the talents I've worked with that um, there were no dues paid. I owe everything. That's nice. I was saying before, and our listeners didn't hear this part, but we were, we were chit-chatting before we turned the mics on, that uh, the, the, uh, the Academy paid tribute to you. Recently, and there's you and Mel Gibson and Rene Russo and Danny Glover, and you're very, you're very touched and you're very humble and very grateful. I, I urge our listeners to go to YouTube and watch it. It's, it's it was a much more. I, I had no idea what it was going to be. Told me they were doing it. I'd really thought there'd be forty or fifty of them. The people, maybe, maybe, maybe fifty. Turned out to be a thousand people. It's great. And the room is full, and I I couldn't put my mouth in gear because my mind was stuck. I couldn't believe it. And when I listened to people talking, I um, I um, I don't think I'm a humble guy, but boy, did they make me humble. That's sweet. It was a very exciting, very emotional. Form. And you had the right line to close the night. You said, "I've been waiting a long time to say this. I'd like to thank the Academy." All right. <laughs> 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 it was and, perfect. Uh, and you did a few episodes among your many TV things of Wild Wild West. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my and God. So I wanted oh, to ask you, I was always like a big fan of Dr. Loveless. Miguelito oh Loveless. Yes. With Michael, Michael Dunn. Dunn. He was oh, the, he dear was Michael the, Dunn. Yes. Yeah. Could you yeah. tell us about... Well, midget actor Michael Dunn. It 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 really goes back to um, the producer Greg Garrison. Greg was an incredibly talented producer, and um, 
had the most bizarre, wild ideas of anybody, which were quite obvious. And he put that show together, and he put that cast together. And uh, uh, I, I was asked to come in on that to reshoot some of the pilot. Um, I think it was just for some new ideas. And then they asked me to do some of the shows. And um, the um, <laughs> when uh, when you'd get into the preparation and see the people whose names were already established, such as his, uh, it, it was always uh, awe-inspiring. I mean, he, this wonderful little man, very fragile, quite honestly. He had uh, terrible bone conditions and everything. Was I don't think was he called a midget or? Well, in those another, in those days, I guess they might have called him a dwarf. Dwarf, I think, but he had yeah in those terrible days. physical problems. So he had, but he was bones. A, he was a Yale graduate. Wow. Yeah, I know he's a yeah. bright fellow. Yeah. And he was always so much fun when he popped up on those shows. Well, he'd pop a, out of the ladies' skirts. He's a great he's a great heavy. <laughs> yeah. But he was fun to work with, Michael Dunn. Oh, a delight. A delight. That's nice. Very articulate, very funny, very... Uh, nobody intellectualized on those things. We all knew what we were doing. <laughs> and... and um, You'd kind of stated the script because it was so good. Man from Uncle 2, same kind of experience? Same thing. There was Rolf, uh, Sam Rolf, a great writer-producer. He, he also created um, Paladin, Have a Gun, Will oh, Travel. Oh, yeah, Richard Boone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was Sam Rolf. And um, yeah, uh, did he create? I forget. I don't know. I mean, I'm... You're taking me back, and I'm of lost. Of course. I mean, we're just, you're talking about <laughs> how you much. You guys have filled my head here. Seriously. <laughs> well, you know, as we tell people, it's a little like this is your life, where you get a whole retrospective of your of your career, with, except without the voices behind the the curtain. I'm, I'm hearing the voices. But you, 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 talk about, you talk about how much fun you had, and I was starting to say, we've, we do so many of these, and we do the, the research on these as well, and we go down memory lane you know was it was it just the time of your life jumping jumping around from assignment to assignment on these shows and working with these people i mean you'd go from the detectives to combat to wagon train to the route 66 to the man from uncle to the twilight zone i mean it, it must have been great days well that the great part was for some reason i never got put in a corner i i could go from Route 66 and then uh, 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 some heavy dramatic show. Like Twilight Zone? Uh, yes. And, and the next show that I'd be hired to do is uh, Gilligan's Island. Right. Or Get Smart, you did. <laughs> or Get Smart. Right. And and you also were in a show, not, not a well-respected show by any stretch, and the theme song went, it's about time. It's about space. <laughs> about two fries in the craziest place. Joey Ross. Yeah. Joey where I Ross. Think, I think the plot of the, uh, the premise of the show. <laughs> oh, my God. That was a Sherwood I, Schwartz show, the yes, Gilligan's Island. That's course. right. Yeah. Sherwood Schwartz. It right. was just that bad. It was two astronauts land on a planet of cavemen. <laughs> well, they, I think they went back in time. That's right. They went back. You're right. Yeah. I was going to think, tell me the story. Yeah. Right. 
Because Sherwood Schwartz loved to get he loved he he liked to make the extra money from the theme song from writing the theme song <laughs> that that would tell you the story of the show just like Gilligan's Island. <laughs> that's right. You did it. That's that was. Sherwood. He knew there was money in the theme songs. And Joey Ross from Car Fifty Four. Oh, ooh, Car Fifty Four. Ooh ooh ooh. What yeah. is it? What was it? Yeah. yeah. Ooh ooh ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, Car 54, and where Coca. are you? Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, and Imogene Coca was on It's About Time. Yes, yes. And they were cavemen and cavewomen. Yes. Oh, right. You know, you know, I forgot that totally. <laughs> <laughs> we could take you back, Richard. <laughs> don't, don't, don't mention that to my wife. And, but I, I heard that, uh, uh, oh, no, it wasn't Schwartz. It was... Um, Oh, Nat Hyken. Nat Hyken. Yeah. Nat Hyken. Who hated Joey Ross. What? He hated Joey Ross. Well, I, Joey Ross was supposedly a crude character who had a penchant for hookers, and I don't know what how well you knew him, but this is what we hear from and co-stars this, this from that show. This is an important story. He went into the White House. Joey Ross? No. Stick with me. Stick with me. Touche. <laughs> And, and there's there's of course a famous Hollywood legend that one time uh, like Car Fifty Four was being sponsored by like I don't know Johnson and Johnson well, Colgate Palmolive oh, yeah or yeah one of those and the execs were there and so they they wanted to make a good impression and invite them you know over to the set and all the crew. And Cass said hello to them and were on their best behavior. And they passed by Joey Ross's dressing room. Here's the here's where the oh, gloves no. come off, Richard. And he was <laughs> he was sitting there with the table wide open, sitting in a chair, jerking off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As the sponsors walked past his open dressing room. <laughs> it does relate to the White House. Yeah. Yes, it and, does. And they were going. Uh, and uh, it's it's an honor to have this next man, Joey. And it was like, oh, okay, we'll come back later. <laughs> <laughs> what about two other funny guys that you work with that we we talk about a lot on this show? Buddy Hackett. Oh yes. And Rickles, you directed in, T- in Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, I lo- uh, John. I'm sorry, we just lost. Yes. Yeah. What can I tell you? They were they were uh, a pleasure to work with. They were. The kind of people that I, I couldn't wait for the breaks or the reset up so I'd have time to be able to sit with them and right. hear, hear the stories. stories. Because all you had to do was start one line and there was a great story for everything. Rickles was, will there ever be anything like Don Rickles? No. Never. I don't think so. And uh, <clears throat> I go way back with him as a, when he was an entertainer and I used to play the Slate Brothers or the Hudson Brothers. On La Cienica. Oh, the Slate Brothers, yeah. Slate Brothers. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Don Don is Don. When I loved him, he was not only one of the funniest, he's one of the brightest, interesting men I've ever known. And what about Hackett? And, and Scrooge, didn't he, <clears throat> wasn't he ad-libbing his, his, uh, his lines? And, they, they all improv. Uh-huh. I mean, they, given the opportunity, I always give them, be them, uh, Humorists, comedians, uh, drama. Uh, once you have your 
your your scene and your intent and everything. I love to have the actors improvise. And when it comes to comedians, it's a world of improvisation. It's it's them. That's why you love them because their personalities are just jammed, waiting to come out with the line that fit at that moment. Apropos, there. So those were those were two amongst many. Can I bring up two other comedians that you work with? And it was, unfortunately, it was a, a, a difficult shoot and a difficult time for you. I think you'll know where I'm going here. That would be Jackie Gleason and Richard Pryor. Oh. And the toy. Yeah. Uh, that was tough. <laughs> that was tough. Maybe maybe I did pay dues. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to take the show in a different direction, Richard. But Yeah, it, it, uh, Richard had... Come off of his accident at about that time, mm-hmm. and um, that's where he lit himself on fire. Yeah, while yeah. doing coke. Horrible, horrible. And um, they, once they were together and things were would go, it was delightful. But otherwise, it it it, it was tough. They, Jackie and his friends, would consume a bottle of. Vodka, James Bacon. By lunch. And um, once that was over, the rest of the day was almost impossible. So you got a half a day out of them. The booze was the problem. Yeah, I'm sure. And personality-wise, I've heard stories about Gleason that he could be a, he could be a total prick to work with. You know... <laughs> Actors are actors. We're all, and um, almost, there's a great percentage of them. Comedians, actors, whatever. Well, comedians are actors. Um, They, something is happening in their lives or something new is, and you are the new part, and they're going to challenge you. And um, it, you've got to continue to condition yourself to how to take that challenge. And there are times you hit it head on and there's times you hit it with uh, a little bit of psychology and and turn it around. But um, it does make the life of a director very difficult when, when he knows he is being challenged and how are you going to stand up to it and how are you going to handle it. Because it's going to infect, in, infect the rest of the shoot on how you handle it at that moment. So, guys, there's some have been very tough. I'll bet. And, and I heard Gene Hackman had a quote that he used to tell a director, uh, just tell me, faster, slower, louder, softer. That's all I want to hear from you. It ended up Gene Hackman and I had the challenge. We turned out to be wonderful friends. Um, as a matter of fact, he did a movie called, he played a director in... Uh, oh, uh, was it Get Shorty? No, Postcard from the Edge. Postcard from the Edge. Oh, right. yeah. That's with, right. With Carrie Brilliant Fisher. script. Right. Brilliant. And when Gene was doing an interview, they said, did you research directors or stylize yourself after? And he said... Yeah, he said, uh, I, I saw myself much as me, Richard Donner. He said, I, I found the compassion for the character, 
for him to say that for me, it was uh, that's great. What, what yeah. an honor! What a great honor! What an honor! And and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Uh, uh you're you worked with both Marlon Brando and Richard Pryor in your career. <laughs> you know where he's going with this, Richard? I and, do. And according <laughs> according to the great legendary composer Quincy Jones, how can I put this gently? You Marlon can't. Brand, Marlon Brando <laughs> fucked Richard Pryor in the ass. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe uh, Quincy may have been there because where else would he say it? It's bizarre, <laughs> isn't it? I find it ridiculous, but... Uh, a lot it's, of people say a lot of things. It's bizarre. There, there was no hint of it when you heard with either one. <laughs> oh my God, no, no, no! They, they, it's ridiculous. Brando never said to you, I, "I have to leave early today. I have to fuck Richard Pryor." And they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that never came up, huh, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> Every night. <laughs> We got about ten minutes left. If we, I just want to ask you a couple of quick questions from from listeners. We call this thing "Grill the Guest." Uh, Mason Wood wants to know about Inside Moves, uh, one of your terrific movies, which I just rewatched. Very small, quiet film that we we want to tell our listeners to watch. And, and uh, Harold Russell, who won an oh. Oscar for the best years of our lives, you brought no. him back to the screen. No, he didn't. You didn't. He won two Oscars. Oh, he won two Oscars. That's correct. That's the only man in the history of the industry that won two Oscars for the same role. That's right. Yeah, yeah because he had, he was a, um, I forget, he was a kid from Canada, lost both of his hands in yeah. the Second World War. Yeah. Hmm. It's a good yeah. movie, by the way. Inside, Thank you. Inside I love moves. And John That's Savage. Very Special movie in my life. It's very good. And John David Morris, of course, who you used a lot, who's, who's terrific. Uh, I love him. But John Savage I, is a guy that, that just we just didn't see enough of. I know. He got, he was up, did he win the Academy Award for Deer Hunter? I think he was nominated and didn't nominated. win it. I think Walken won that award. Yeah, Walken won. And, but, I mean, that year, when yeah. that when the Deer Hunter came out, Everybody was talking about John Savage as the next big star. I don't know what. Oh, I do know what happened. He had a motorcycle accident. Oh, really? And um, and I think it was neurological damage done. And um, it took a long time for John to come back. Um, and it's too bad because... He is, was, and shall be, continuous, an extraordinarily special actor. Well, you, I'm so surprised he's not, we're not seeing him. In, yeah, he's good in everything. And you've made a lot of blockbusters, but I want to recommend to our listeners uh, both Inside Moves and Radio Flyer, two of your smaller movies. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they're they're both very, very well done. Um, Gilbert does want to hear about this before we go. <laughs> Richard, since we're talking about I people. I want to hear about Marlon Brando <laughs> fucking Richard Pryor in the ass. Uh, since we're talking I about. I will. Go I'll ahead. send you the Polaroids. <laughs> we're, we're talking about people who are deep in their cups. Is there a story early in your career about directing Lucy and Desi and oh, William Frawley oh, when they'd been bending the elbow? 
that's how my career got started, really. I was doing um, commercials for Desilu. Mm-hmm. And um, at, I would also shoot the commercials and opening for the Desilu show. And uh, in the morning, it was Betty Fernez, Lucy, Desi, Vivian Vance, and Bill Froll. <laughs> Remember them all. <laughs> and that boils down to a bottle of champagne, a bottle of Jack Daniels, and vodka, which was usually consumed again by lunchtime. <laughs> and, uh, wow. And, but they were professionals and great characters, and that was the time. And um, there was a wonderful producer who I was uh, doing these commercials for, and um, he had a good friend named... Ed Adamson, who was doing um, the Steve McQueen show, Wanted Dead or Alive. Oh, yeah. And he was over visiting on the set. And Andrew watched me with those five. He came over and he said, do you think you could work with Steve McQueen if you could work with all of them? I said, oh, my God. We were actors together in New York. Uh, Sure. And he hired me to do my first Steve McQueen show, which turned my career around. That's great. What, what so, again, you paid some dues. Yeah. <laughs> what always yeah. struck me is, like, back then, everybody drank, but no one was considered alcoholic. Like uh, by the, them, they were, I think, considered alcoholics by everybody, but knew them but themselves. <laughs> I mean, they, <laughs> uh, they would talk about their friends who were alcoholics. And uh, they were, they were consumers. And what was Steve McQueen like to work with? Um, interesting, a good guy. Um, he put me through my paces the first time because he, although I was hired to work with him, he didn't want to work with me because he felt I was an actor, not a director. And um, but um, he. He put me through my challenges. It ended up, we, uh, I beat them. We got along well. And I think I did a half a dozen of his shows. Yeah. At least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to rap, Mr. G? What do you think? Yeah. This has been uh, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. And we have been talking to Bronx Bond. Richard Donald Schwartzberg. Uh, <laughs> he was going to get to that. 41st Street and White Plains Road. I yes. love that. So a Jew, <laughs> a, a legendary Jew director. <laughs> fuck you, Frank. <laughs> with, with your goddamn fucking ginjos. A couple, of, a couple of good Italian directors over the years. Richard, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, you're the kind of guy we could talk to for six hours. I, I barely got through half of my cards. We didn't get to Lady Hawk or Goonies or the Lethal oh. Weapon movies. And, and we could just keep going. Maybe you'll come back and do this with us again and do a part I'd two. I'd love it. I'd really like it. You guys are great. Oh, it was such a blast. So this it, was a- it has been anglicized Richard Donner. <laughs> <laughs> he does this with every guest. And any, he does? Well, anybody, anyone know. who's Jewish and has changed their name. And... <laughs> And as he Richard, changed his, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to make it more Jewy. Yeah. And as Richard swore to us earlier in the show, he witnessed 
Marlon Brando <laughs> fucking Richard Pryor in the ass. <laughs> Bless you for that, Richard. Oh, uh, well, what the heck? <laughs> and Richard, I want to I want to thank you for all you've done for animals and animal rights. And I don't I don't I'm missing your your fur button, your anti fur uh, button. But uh, go, going all the way back to the goldfish in the, in the omen that you painted, the sardines <laughs> that you painted orange. So Jeez, you didn't want to kill you didn't want to kill live fish. So God bless your heart. Bless you. Thank you, guys. I've I've got to go back to New York. I had to come all the way out. I just realized you're in New York. I had to come out all the way from New York to here. I didn't know it. Now I'm going back to my home. Are you are you coming back here at any time? Yeah, I live there. I just left there to come out here. Oh, they told shit. me I had to come out here and do this oh, here. Oh, come on now. We'll do this live if you're ever in New York. You're on. Okay, pal. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Real for us. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. 